Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi, guys. Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Are you, you sound unsure. Have you forgotten? Well, no, I'm reading at the same time that I'm talking to you. And I, I came to a point in the reading where I was like, what? But I was still talking. So my voice went, what? <laughs> I'm just picturing <laughs> home improvement now. What were yeah, you reading? Yeah, that was about? different. Our very first story that we're going to tell our folks Why? about pretty soon. Our here. first story? Um, that means Santosh. Is it an alternate week? It, it, it is. This would be an off week, not an and on that week. Means but it's we're time. still on. For everybody's favorite segment, Journal Club! Yay! <laughs> All right. Tell, why don't you tell me what's the first story, and then we'll talk about the topic. We'll see if we can figure yeah, it out. Yeah, uh, this was published in one of my favorite journals, Penis. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, PNAS. It's the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. Oh. So PNAS. Well, that's different uh, then. It, it is very different. I mean... If I, I suppose you could publish this on penis, uh, there have been penis stories in PNAS. Is it a big journal? Uh, no, it's I. It's not all that big, but it's quite. Does prominent. it deal in hard science? <laughs> it it's it only accepts the hardest of science. So and and the impact is quite Are there a high. lot of early submissions. <laughs> Which, <laughs> you you can submit early, but usually the submissions just come rolling. So you don't really have, you know, a time when you have to submit. 
you can and, pretty much and it's been going you want, strong so. for a number right. of years. Oh yeah, yeah, long, long time. I mean, this is one that just—I mean, you know—it comes and it goes. And, it comes and, and would goes, you say that most of its uh, customers are satisfied? So satisfying. So sa- occasionally, you know, it shoots out a blank. You know, what are you going to do? But uh, the vast majority of it. And that has been our vaudeville segment, Inappropriate Innuendo. Thanks for coming, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, ensures 100% that me, a lab scientist, will never get into the National Academy of Sciences. We'll save this one for your ceremony. I was really hoping to one day. I thought I did good work. But no, they're going to listen to this and they're going to be like, oh, this is some bullshit right here. No, this this is our equivalent of, you know, the the Royal Academy of Sciences over in England or the, you know, the Academy in, in France. I mean, this is like, it's a really big deal. And the scientists are fantastic. And it's all vetted by the finest minds, the results that come out of here. Um, you either have to be in the National Academy of Sciences in order to publish or your science has to be of just the highest level. And I just uh, made a whole bunch of genital jokes. It has to be impeccable. They don't allow any impotent fool in. Oh, God damn you to hell. <laughs> We've talked about how scientists are bad at naming yeah. things. And yeah, this is true. Uh, I'm actually quite proud. Listen, you know, the- this is not going to change. No, they... <laughs> Well, no, I. You know what? In this, in this case, I'm a hundred percent sure that someone was like, "What should we call our journal?" National Academy of Sciences, and someone was like, "The Proceedings." And there were a bunch of you know nerdy scientists in there. They're like, "All right, that sounds good." And that one guy who made the suggestion was like, ha. and he knew exactly what he was doing. Some, you know how many ever hundreds of years ago <laughs> that one guy was my great 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 grandpappy uh, bring but it back the united states is only a couple of hundred years old <laughs> put the brakes on it's all right it's a very short-lived family yeah <laughs> but fast reproducing uh, it's just... dr josh is about to record this podcast and pass on to the hereafter is what he's saying all right. Tell me about the study found in the proceedings. Yeah, this was uh, a really beautifully done study. They actually took a, a single case of uh, necrotizing fasciitis, where the patient had exposure to uh, a, a couple of different bacteria. One of these is Aramonas hydrophila. Uh, Aramonas is kind of a sewer bug. It lives in dirty water. You also find it as a part of commensal uh, bacteria in some animal mouths. Uh, Alligators is a good example. If you get an alligator bite, you might get infected with Aramonas hydrophila. But what they did after that was they actually... They pulled out the clonal strains from the necrotizing fasciitis. So they they pulled out what the individual strains were. And then they said, oh, you know what? This actually wasn't a monomicrobial infection with a single aromonas. This was several different aromonad populations. And they, you know, beautifully, they called it necrotizing fasciitis one, two, three. Um, so they said, Well, NF1 uh, had the ability to disseminate 
Um, and then NF2 was rapidly killed by just a, a contact mechanism and could be, you know, phagocytized and stuff. So they actually showed that, you know, that you actually needed several different strains, even if by culture you just found one genus and species of bacteria, you needed certain toxins and certain strains of a type of bacteria in order to carry out this necrotizing fasciitis. And this type of sort of deconstruction of an infection model in necrotizing fasciitis had never really been done before to this detail. So this might become a model for necrotizing fasciitis moving forward so that we can better understand the disease and find better ways to fight it. Because right now, Josh, all we have for tools is surgery. So this poor guy that, that got this necrotizing fasciitis got a quadruple amputation because the problem is, even though if you think, hey, you know, I can give antibiotics, well, antibiotics cannot penetrate anywhere where there is no blood flow. So if the tissue dies as a consequence of the infection and the toxin production, then you've got to cut that tissue out in order to save the rest of the human being. And as a brief aside, that's why infections like an osteomyelitis or of the bone are so hard to treat is because there's not really a lot of accessible blood highways that uh, go directly to those sites. Right. And so for those, it's not only often that you need surgery to actually get the pus out, but you need weeks and weeks and weeks of antibiotics. So yeah, we've got uh, some beautiful new toxins here. VAS-K, my very, very favorite, Josh, in bacteria, a type 6 secretion system effector or T6SS. And then the effector is called TSEC. Josh, if you can admit... Let me pick my jaw up off the floor. Not the TSCC or the secretion sector X. Aren't we so good at naming things? Type uh, secretion systems, Josh, you'll actually really love these. Secretion systems are really, really cool. We didn't know this even about a decade and a half ago, but if you look at bacteria, they have the ability with their proteins to form these needle-like projections, these micro-nanoscopic needles that can actually stab into cells and deliver a bunch of toxins right inside of a cell. And so this is called a secretion system. A type 6 is, you know, the sixth one. <laughs> it has this needle-like projection with a host of other factors that allows it to literally deliver the proteins that it needs right into a host cell so that it can either hijack it and take the nutrients or kill it and then you know, use up all the delicious goop inside in order to grow and replicate. So they they kind of, they found the T T6SS, the type 6 secre secretion system, the TSEC, which is an effector on the secretion system, and uh, they knocked out the protein that encodes an essential T6SS structural component and then showed VASK and TSEC were really important to, to carry out this, uh, this infection and the necrotizing thing. Oh, that's neat. And it's fascinating to know that it's not just one single 
bacteria, but that it takes teamwork to take you. It does. So it may have started off, you know, when the infection first got in there, it may have started off as a single clonal population, or it could have been that there were multiple clones that infected at the same time. Um, but yeah, it, it looks like you do need, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. Or in this case, teamwork causes quadruple amputation. In this case, teamwork causes hospitalization. <laughs> but nonetheless, together brings results. Yeah. However, tragic as our quadruple amputee is, I've got some cheery news for you and potentially him next. Mm-hmm. Oh, yay. Well, I mean... Hopefully he has a good resilience because poor guy going through a quadruple amputation from necrotizing fasciitis. I mean, you have to have a lot of kind of like support and everything to bounce back from something like that. So kudos, kudos to him and and best luck for the future guy. Well, let me ask, have you seen the new Terminator movie, Dark Fate? I didn't get to, is that the one with old Sarah Connor? Yes. Oh, I, I heard it was actually after a bunch of really crappy Terminators. I heard this one was actually pretty good. It was quite a lot of fun, but since you're not familiar with it, okay. we'll come back to that. Are you familiar with, okay. oh, you know, cucumbers? <laughs> Listen, we. I think we do like a 30-minute journal club here. I don't know how many penis jokes we can fit in. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be here on emojis don't, anymore. No, no, because, well, no, I mean, if we want to be educational and entertaining, if, by the way, Josh, if you and I just want to, like, go off the rails and be like, we're the penis joke, you know, podcast now, I, I mean, I'm cool with so it. I just need a heads up. I was referring to the fact. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm looking out for the fans. As a cucumber plant grows. It sprouts a number of tightly coiled tendrils that seek out support and then pull the plant upward. Cucumbers are full-on mountain climbers. They okay. are they are swole. And now yeah. researchers at MIT, okay. through impassioned study of the cucumber, have found a way to imitate this coiling and pulling mechanism to produce new artificially contracting fibers that could be used as muscles for robots, prosthetic limbs, or other mechanical and biomedical applications. So before we get into the deep, the nitty-gritty of this, I am fully in support of the idea of cybernetic parts that will help us fight off the inevitable Terminator revolution. <laughs> I see, I really don't think it's gonna be a Terminator resol- you know, revolution in that kind of a sense where the robots just rise up. I think we're really just gonna get infiltrated by, you know, like the banality of shit on our phone, like Facebook and Twitter until and stuff. All your smartphone until the we data just kind of go you blah, in a kill command thing. to the Roomba. And the next thing you know, Robot Nation terminators so let's let's talk about how to create our super soldiers to defend ourselves <laughs> sure this is we're not by the way to the point of like augmentation right we're not to the point where we can make ourselves bigger faster stronger this is a artificial poor substitute to current 
muscle fibers that you find in real life. Yes, put away those for now. Professor Killjoy is right. The new fibers were developed by MIT postdocs Mehmet Kanik and MIT graduate student Sirma Orguk with a lot of additional punctuation. Sure, yeah, yeah. No, it's, you know, Eastern European names. I'm guessing Turkey. Uh, and a large team of others uh, to combine a couple of these metals. So they used memory, shape memory metals that respond to stimuli that is extremely lightweight and can respond quickly, which is rather important for a muscle fiber. Otherwise, you're going to just have, you know, a frozen stiff muscle or tetany. The key to the process is putting together two materials that have very different thermal expansion coefficients. So when you start being physically active, the fiber heats up and can rapidly expand. And then the side that doesn't expand as fast, made of a different material, holds it in place. It pulls against the muscle. Yeah. Now, memory metals have been around for a long time. We're using this kind of technology in biomedical applications in things like stents for arteries that retain their shape depending on what temperature they're at. So you can either cool it down or heat it up in order to get it into a contracted little ball. And then you can return to um, body core temperature of around 97, 98 degrees, something like that. And it'll expand back out into a certain shape so that it holds um, in my previous example and that of a stent. But the cooler application here is that you can apply heat and take it away and you can cause these things to actually exert force on something, which is just what our muscles do by pulling. Um, always remember, ladies and gents, muscles can only pull, not push. They so don't have any the expansion The truly power. beneficial thing about this is not only is the science behind it fascinating, but it can be easily and cheaply manufactured in batches of up to hundreds of meters long, and a single fiber is capable of lifting loads up to 150 times its own weight. This type of memory metal could potentially do something that biological muscles can't do is that they can potentially provide force by expansion. Pretty much every muscle that we know, definitely muscles in humans, can only exert force by shortening. And, you know, when you have the relaxation phase, you need a muscle opposite to it in order for the limb to actually lengthen rather than contract. So, you know, that's why, you know, you can flex your elbow, extend your elbow because you have biceps and triceps on either side. Um, but yeah, if you, if you have metal, the neat thing about this is that, you know, it could potentially exert force in contraction and expansion. Um, that would be brand new. That would be something that, you know, human biology really doesn't know do, which is pretty damn awesome. Classic example, Josh, I think that a lot of people think of is graphene. For a long time, we thought, oh, graphene is going to do everything. It's got these electrical properties and it's super strong and blah, blah, blah. But we can't manufacture it in giant batches. Start to think about things like replacing muscle or augmenting muscle, or if you need to make a robot. Or useless human limbs. Or useless human limbs. Or if you need to make a robot that has muscular type. Like a Terminator. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking, you know, like something that just lifts and puts things down and that kind of a thing.
Like corpses. Oh, for the love of God. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so like corpses, if you must. So, <laughs> yeah, but you could you could use this type of technology. Josh, I think the neatest thing about it is, say right now, if your muscle on a robot is a... Uh, you know, it's a solid piston that expands and contracts and allows a limb to move. Well, if that piston breaks down, you pretty much have to take it apart and, you know, replace whatever you need. In this kind of a case, if you had several like little muddle, metal muscle strands, if you had a break in the system, then you could actually just replace some of the fibers. You wouldn't have to replace the whole limb. Like Christmas lights. Those are always fun to untangle. <laughs> is it this bulb? No. <laughs> the team has successfully tested bundles of 100 fibers, and they coat each of these fibers in a number of sensors that can provide feedback about contracting power, how much force to apply, temperature, uh, a whole host of data that could be fed back into a real prosthetic limb. Such fibers might also find uses in tiny devices like a robot that crawls around an artery, gets activated, and scrapes cholesterol off, clearing blockages. Right, because you can't really make piston muscles that are that small. You can actually do this thing, Josh, which, which is what we do all the time as humans. You can engage some of the muscle without engaging all of the muscle. So we can do that. We can apply a little bit of strength to you know pick up an egg, or we can apply a lot of strength when we need to based on what percentage of those muscle fibers you want to engage. Well, our work. new superhuman is likely going to need to be examined rather often, especially given that this technique is, <laughs> although very simple, still quite new. So it's got a lot of future testing to do. Uh, but the next article yeah. is about a new trick that produces some ghostly x-ray images with a much lower dose of radiation. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that. Yeah, so I mean, everybody knows, just like we all know smoking is bad, an excess of x-rays, oh, I like how that sounds, an excess of x-rays <laughs> is bad for you. Which is why <laughs> radiographers always step out of the room before they zap you. Yeah, I, and by the way, you know, the jokes are always there. Like, How come you get to stand behind a shield? <laughs> well, x-ray exposure and the damage that it causes is A, cumulative, and B, dose-dependent. So hopefully you as a patient will be getting like, you know, an x-ray or two, and if you're well and you're healthy for a long time, you'll get like a few x-rays throughout your entire life. By the way, if you want to imagine how much radiation you get, one chest x-ray is about the same background radiation of flying from New York to Los Angeles in the sky. You get the same amount of background x-ray. Now, the problem is though for that person, that technician or the physician who's in the room, there are x-rays firing off all the time. And not just in the direction of the patient, but it's also scattering uh, in trace amounts off the walls and this kind of a thing. So that's why if they were to protect themselves, they would be exposed to a much higher cumulative. Not you are there for one photo. They are taking photos of many patients on many days. But let's talk about <laughs> ghost imaging. Or alleged. Finally, sure. someone knows how to name something properly. Yeah. <laughs> this this was, yeah. I mean, because it, well, it actually looked like ghosts. So, so it sense. starts with a series of X-ray beams, but now they're shot at a plate in a unique 
checkerboard like pattern that's randomized. And most of these rays are just going to hit the camera that records the details of the pattern, but a small portion are reflected back towards the object that is being imaged. So they pass through the object and enter a camera with one large pixel that just measures total brightness. So by combining those two, the checkerboard image and the bright image, they essentially create an x-ray magic eye. You guys, we're bringing back the 90s. <laughs> That's true. And the difference being magic eye, you know, you have to be the one to stare there and make your eyes fuzzy. And it's a boat. <laughs> that kind of a thing. In this case, uh, we're going to go ahead and have a, a computer kind of composite the image. Yeah, so you see where the pattern is disrupted to infer mm -hmm. what objects are in the image, and then the other one, the remaining x-rays, to see how bright it is. So how, how fast the rays are penetrating it, because we know the rates at which x-rays can penetrate skin, muscle, organ, and bone. So right now, instead of the bone predominantly absorbing most of the x-rays and, and stopping them from hitting the detector. And then pretty much all you see is bone. Now you can get even more detailed pictures with a low radiation dose of those soft tissues. Which means it could lower the dose not only for things like cancer screening, but it could also lower time to image other more urgent things. Usually we go straight to CT as that's a much faster reliable method of imaging. But for some injuries or some diseases, x-ray is still a wonderful diagnostic tool, and this could improve it even more. Uses less energy, uses less radiation than a CT, and it's so much quicker. The other awesome advantage, if we can integrate this into our portable x-ray machines, the one that we actually wheel into the patient's room, is that you can bring it to the patient. Whereas a CT scanner, by and large, is still fixed in one spot, and you can't really take it around. And in order to get a more accurate image from an x-ray, you may have to up the radiation to where it's equivalent to a standard CT scan. So more studies... More studies are indicated before you use it on direct human testing, but for things like biological samples that could degrade too much exposure or follow-up or maintenance screening, this may be a wonderful solution for the future. It just really matters, is it dosage per exposure versus your total integrated dosage? What has wow. an advantage? Like how many bananas difference in radiation are we talking? That's okay. You don't have to know. In fact, if you're all wondering, have I gone bananas? Look it up. We've it before in previous episodes. Bananas are radioactive. You learned something today. Oh, for the love of God. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe you lured me into that. God damn it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> there, there is such a, a thing dose. as a banana dose of radiation. <laughs> uh, but it must have just slipped your mind. <laughs> All right. I don't find this very appealing. Move on. I just can't help dole in out these puns. Uh, <laughs> Don't you be using your colonist, <laughs> you know, those in your puns, those people who took away the bananas from all of us, you know. Don't get don't get cheeky da with me, sir. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm feeling I've got quite a plan, Tane, and we're sticking to it. <laughs> Moving on to our next. All right. Well, give me a hand. Get me <laughs> Moving out of on here. to our next story. 
Tuberculosis. Yeah. <laughs> not by the way, we're doing an innovations thing. Tuberculosis, not a not a new thing. Ancient disease. Well, well, Horrible wait for disease. it. Because yes, we have yeah. been talking about innovations, which means this has got to contribute something. We have to have something new to say about tuberculosis, right? Sure, yeah. What if I were to tell you that there might be an experimental tuberculosis vaccine that is new and partially effective at preventing a dormant infection from progressing <laughs> to active disease? I'd say we already have something like that called BCG or Bacille Calmette Guerin. But it's pretty crappy. Um, we give BCG to anybody who uh, is from a tuberculosis endemic area, i.e. any place outside of North America, large parts of Europe. But yeah, pretty much everywhere else, BCG is used as a standard and it's given at a young age to stop tuberculosis from spreading. It's not fantastic. It's been used for a really long time. And about a quarter of the world's population has latent TB, which means they are infected with tuberculosis, but it's just lying dormant, not doing any damage, but kind of squatting around the premises. You might be walking around, for instance, with tuberculosis right now, uh, Josh, especially... Sorry, that's No, it's fair. <laughs> well, especially if you have been to multiple tuberculosis endemic countries or like Josh and I, you work in healthcare. It's really just part of living life. Tuberculosis has been around much longer than humans. And so we've been growing up with that our entire evolutionary right. life. So the new vaccine known as the very easy to remember M72 slash AS01 subcase E. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> Has been developed by GlaxoSmithKline and Eris. So we should we should preface this as, you know, many things as this study was driven and uh, you know, kind of uh underwritten by a drug company. So there is a conflict mm. of interest here and it was fully disclosed in the New England Journal of Medicine. To be paper. fair, listening audience, most new drugs are discovered directly by drug company funded research. That's why we also feel very strongly that they have a humanitarian responsibility and they should be held to the same types of standards that doctors and pharmacists are because Literally, without them, we have no medicines to give. So to save they lives. tested this trial on it involved 3,500 adults in Kenya, South Africa, and Zambia who all had been given the BCG vaccine as children, who all had latent tuberculosis infection, regardless, and half of whom were given two doses of this new vaccine. Do you remember what it is called, Santosh? <laughs> All right. MS. Oh, no, sorry. Sub M72 slash ASO1E. Very Sub easy. E I don't fine. know why you can't get that right. Bad <laughs> that I half can't of be the as pedantic got as you. two doses of this vaccine. The other yeah. half got a placebo. But they had all already been given standard of care for tuberculosis and latent tuberculosis previously. Yeah. This as, is a vaccine that's passed uh, safety trials as well. After the three years, of our they testing. followed up with these patients and there were half as many cases of active disease in the vaccine group as there were in the placebo group. To be fair, an efficacy Yay! of 50% is mm -hmm. low compared with most established vaccines. 
You know, it's basically tossing a coin being, maybe this will help your TB. Maybe it won't. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> and yeah, and there are some places, for instance, where it didn't work. Kenya, it didn't seem to work at all. We actually had like a pretty negative efficacy. Um, at best, it was pretty much the same as placebo. Um, but yeah, we, we had really, really good outcomes, Josh, in South Africa. South Africa, we had really good numbers to test this. So for instance, the population in South Africa, 11 out of 1307, um, you know, caught definite tuberculosis, whereas with the placebo, 24 out of 1,344 caught it. But in Zambia, there was only one case of tuberculosis out of a total of uh, 145 patients in both arms. So they weren't able to really power it. Bad for the study, good for Zambia. That's true. <laughs> so the South African population was really the best. Unfortunately, we really did have a downside. Kenya, again, we had two cases of tuberculosis in the vaccine arm and only one case of tuberculosis in the placebo arm. So, you know, we really couldn't use that data. It, it, you can't really power a study with that few incidences. Interestingly, Kenya and Zambia are in a different region of Africa from South Africa. And I wonder to what extent that played a confound in the data, which they don't really address in the paper. That's true. They don't address it. And the biggest reason for that is because of the low numbers in those populations. You know, when, when you have, you know, 13 cases, 20 cases, something like that, then you can actually examine the data. But when you have one case, zero case, two cases, now you don't really have the ability to to pick it apart. Well, it sounds like we at least managed to develop a new somewhat effective tool in the ongoing fight against tuberculosis. It was. It was really awesome. And then the other part of it, of course, that's always really, really important. The safety profile was good. The vaccine managed to generate a good amount of antibodies without causing a risk of, you know, adverse events that were higher than the placebo. So uh, this is really important when you're doing vaccine trials and you're going head-to-head -head with placebo, you really have to look at total adverse events in both arms because you don't know if the adverse event is caused by the actual vaccine or if it would have just happened anyway. So there were just two serious adverse events. There was a case of serious fever in the vaccine group and then in the placebo group, there was a person who got really high blood pressure to the point where his brain stopped working. 47 total deaths from a bunch of different causes. And so they had 19 participants in the placebo group that died and, or sorry, in the vaccine group that died and 28 participants in the placebo group meaning that head-to-head, -head, there was an equal amount of morbidity from all causes. So essentially, the, there was no correlation of worse safety with using the vaccine versus placebo. So you've got, for the first time, a, a really decent response of a vaccine, even though 50% isn't great, it's better than the crap we had before, and we have a safe vaccine. 
Yeah, and one that operates friendly mm-hmm. from the existing ones. So resistance becomes it's harder to develop. It's not quite futile, but, you know. <laughs> um, but that is a really good point, Josh. The more cases of TB that you prevent, the less antibiotics you use. The less antibiotics you use, the less chances there are for building resistance. And that's it for this week of all our new innovative stories. I'm so happy about yeah. this. This was a cool list of brand new things. And it, it was neat because it was from like all different parts of science. Yeah. I, I think my favorite is also fibers. Not only can you be cool as a cucumber, you can be strong as one. <laughs> the inspiration for some of these are absolutely awesome. I mean, someone really did look at a cucumber and watched how the plant like kind of pulled itself up like that. And they're like, hey, we could we could. So for this week's just the tip, there was a pretty recent winter storm that showed up in Chicago and over a lot of the U.S. Okay, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, climate change is upon us. Uh, I think more and more we do have to work to save ourselves from a changing climate and and try to reduce carbon etc but a lot of this stuff is irreversible and so really harsh winters really harsh summers unpredictability you know we're we're just gonna have to eat it we got our earliest snow on record in chicago (laughs) and i just want you guys to know if if the city is over demolition man style (laughs) when you thaw when you thaw me out i do want to go to taco bell just just tell me tell me how classy i have to dress but given all the cold weather i figured i'd talk about another cold destination because california's still on fire it is even like dude the the temperature dropped here it got much much better and things that wanted to burn were just like, no, I'm just going to keep burning. So one of the things we did around this time last year when it got cold was head on up to Fairbanks, Alaska to go catch the Northern Lights. From late August to early April, anytime during the dark, they could appear. Now, I don't entirely understand what makes them show. I had a friend with me who got it pretty well. So we did dog sledding, dashing through the snow, on a dog sleigh, staring up at the sky, shivering all the way. And we did get to see that aurora, and it was pretty uh-huh. darn cool. Definitely worth a, a visit. Also, while you're there is Denali National Park. Yes. Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous. You do have to be a bit lucky in order to see Denali, um, which was once called Mount McKinley. It's a big, beautiful peak, unless you go you know, right up to it to and you're, you're going to have to do some hiking in order to do that. But from the road, you will have to wait for a really clear day in order to see it. But if you get a chance at it, it's gorgeous. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. If you'd like to support spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to that are in the show notes. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever social media is found. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys.